0: Canada now has a population that is one in five immigrants. The Prime Minister has stated he expects the proportion to increase as immigration levels are ratcheted up. Canada is doing well compared to many nations, we have low unemployment, poverty and homelessness. But Canada does have about 10% of our people living below the poverty line and about 230,000 are homeless. These numbers are hard to pin down and are based on factors that are constantly in flux. But it is not just the numbers that are problematical, what unemployed, homeless, and poor means from a policy and statistical perspective is not what the average person would understand them to mean. However, without getting involved in the academic arguments about definitions, there is no disagreement that people in Canada need help. Canada is an advanced civilization capable of building good homes and creating well-paying jobs. It is not Canada's technical competence that is being questioned, it is our ability to solve the problem in its entirety. We can build homes, but can we build the number of homes that is needed? Private and public agencies build homes for the homeless and create jobs for the jobless as well as improve the lot of those who have been less than successful. But it seems individually and together they cannot create enough jobs nor build sufficient homes to end poverty or homelessness. To supply a single individual with an acceptable level of goods and services in a highly developed, industrial economy, is easy. To do it for the numbers of people who need homes and jobs appears to be impossible. It only increases the problems of supply and demand when the country is dealing with an expanding population. Canada has to educate, house and equip new arrivals. These may be from outside the country, which creates its own problems, but the new arrival may be the result of a natural process of procreation, a process that requires a biological male and biological female, regardless of government mandates. Every life needs approximately the same amount of resources. A stable or declining population has the resources in place. An expanding population needs new supplies of goods and services to be produced. Historically, Canada has not had to deal with an expanding population or one that has rapidly increased in numbers. We lose too many people to the United States for the population to expand from the natural process of procreation, quickly. Canadians immigrate to the U.S. because they want a larger portion of their income to be used for their own purposes. Canadians rarely move south because they are seeking a more liberal government. The Democrats south of us would be conservatives in Canada. Because of difference in politics the poor in Canada expect a relatively higher standard of living than do the poor in the U.S. Canadians believe their government can supply the poor with goods and services more reliably than the private sector. But regardless of the politics, both countries are a pie that can be shared an infinite number of times. But neither economy can overcome logic. The more shares a pie is divided into the smaller each individual share is. Canada strives to reduce energy use and create sustainability and improve the lives of its citizens. The degree to which a nation attempts to protect its environment magnifies the difficulty it has in supplying its citizens. It is not difficult to see that to build a home requires land to put it on. Every home built uses up a portion of the available land. This is true even when condominiums are built. The footprint of a condominium is smaller than the same number of single-family homes, but condominiums block views and take up airspace. People still need to be provided with green space to walk-in and recreational facilities that are to some degree taken care of in a single-family home. Imagine the problems of a nation on a small scale. To make the issues clear, we will use manageable numbers. The population will be a village of 1,000 people. 10% of this population are in need. The village has an immigration policy that permits the village to settle 100 new persons the first year, with 10% added to the total each subsequent year. The village has an expanding population determined by new migrants new births minus new deaths and outward migrations. The task of the village is to supply the new arrivals with homes, jobs, education and replace the destroyed or damaged facilities as well as upgrade the infrastructure that has fallen below the acceptable standard. The question is, if a population is growing can it ever eliminate poverty or need? Could the village have new homes and jobs waiting for the new arrivals? It would be difficult to imagine this happening. But now imagine a village of the same size who has no or extremely low migration. What we assume in this scenario is that the population is in decline. Logically, if the unemployment and homelessness is 10% and the population declines by 10% jobs and homes become available. Demand for goods and services also declines but because jobs and homes are made available without the need to build new, the problem of need is solved to a larger degree. The point of these two scenarios is not to ask which scenario you would choose. That is not a question that needs to be asked. No matter who you are you will choose the second scenario. However, the question that must be settled is what number of persons will live in the village when you abandon the first scenario and adopt the second. At some point this will and must happen. Regardless of your opinion on the carrying capacity of the planet, at some point the population has to stabilize through choice or malthusian factors. But we are not finished quite yet because we must assume the village is on a finite amount of property, and that efforts to preserve the environment become ever more difficult the larger grows the population. Regardless how one organizes things, every new person will have some proportion less than the previous population. The difference may be obvious or invisible, but the pie in some sense remains the same regardless how many persons share it. The world does not get larger, the minerals do not get more abundant. We can make more with less in many different ways, but we are still consuming things and still sharing what exists between more and more persons. There are many, many different ways to accommodate people and provide for their needs. But no matter how we choose to do it we do not make things out of nothing. The homes and clothes and food and all of the consumer goods come from somewhere and they are all made out of something. How we access the raw materials and fabricate and deliver goods and services can be debated. But that we all must use what has existed from the beginning of time cannot be questioned. Regardless of how clever and inventive we are, we are on a lifeboat and whatever the supply was at the beginning of time remains at that level, has never increased and will never increase. Perhaps we need a fourth law of motion— The Law of Territorial Acquisition. For every acquisition there is an equal but opposite compensation. Which gives us the NIMBY doctrine, which states, Everyone has a right to what they create but no right to claim what was created by any other. No one has a right to claim what they did not create or cause costs to be externalized onto society and future generations. This brings us to the issue of democracy which is superficially a technique by which mob rule can be normalized. Democracy has only one outcome and that is the concentration of power into fewer hands than was the case prior to the vote. Democracy is a way to normalize tyranny, or more precisely, fascism. Democracy leads to fascism and is a technology or methodology for transforming mass movements into state-sponsored ones. This does not just refer to Nazism, the same process can be seen with the normalization of homosexuality. What was a fringe movement was turned into government policy. But this view of democracy as a political force hides the true character of democracy. Though moderns think democracy has changed the dynamics of politics, nothing substantial has changed from the days when Nimrod created the First Kingdom. In those days the threat of death and destruction caused the vassals of the Lord to pledge allegiance to the ruler. Now, the process is more subtle, but the same end is the result of the democratic process. The subjects of the president or prime minister through engaging in the political process implicitly pledge allegiance to the elected ruler. But this support is not significant if the lord's underlings have nothing to contribute to the upkeep of the government. In this sense the world has not moved far beyond the days of the lord in his castle, demanding acts of fealty in both goods and services from his subordinate provinces. Let's look at this situation more closely by imagining a billionaire that buys an inhabited island. He will, in all probability, act as an autocrat, developing the island in the way he thinks best. Regardless of his motives or intent, he will consider his choices to be the best possible choices. He could, however, deposit his fortune in a trust account and make the account accessible to the group with the most support on the island. Logically there can only be two major parties or two fundamentally different positions for a party to take. One party or group will want to divvy up the money between the islanders in some way and in some proportion, whereas the other party or group will want to keep the fund intact as much as possible and make it available to all citizens living and yet to be born. But, in all probability, there will be more persons wanting to spend the money immediately, then there will be people who want to invest the funds in future development. But what if the billionaire chooses to clear-cuts the forest, strip the land of arable soil and its minerals and overfishes the waters? The land and water is stripped of all value and its ability to sustain life is removed. Upon leaving the billionaire grants the people their freedom under a democratically elected government. But they now live on a bare rock devoid of everything of value. People claim they will die to protect their democratic freedoms, but would you give up all property and all rights to property to have the right to vote? What does democracy even mean if it does not give you access to the property within a political jurisdiction? It is not the vote you really want, it is access to real wealth. How many would abandon democracy for a guaranteed income for life? What if life requires work? This is not a strange or implausible proposition. There is little in nature that is directly usable. Everything requires some processing to be used by mankind. Democracy puts people into government and government puts people into the bureaucracy. But bureaucrats do not produce anything but regulations and ordinances, or they implement these rules and regulations. But they do not produce anything you can hang on the wall or put in a kitchen cupboard. What if everyone joined the police, army, or became a social worker or counselor? What if when the billionaire became the owner of the island, he hired most of the population to be servants and gardeners in his mansion? What if the entire population became an advisory panel and sat all day and advised the billionaire what he ought to do with his money? What would happen to the economy of the island? What these comments would like to accentuate or stress is that the style of government is always a problem and never the solution. Democracy is a solution to autocracy and autocracy is a solution to anarchy, but they do not solve anything more than this. Few Westerners understand poor people in poor countries often fear their neighbors more than the government. They fear the graft and corruption of their neighbors. They want a strong ruler, even at the cost of his graft and corruption. Government oppression harms the economy and impacts the life of the individual less than a violently ambitious neighbor does. Democracy leaves the government open to the activism of organized criminal elements. North Korea and China are despotic regimes, but they have everyone working and only a small number of people are permitted to oppress the people. The despot and the democrats share this much in common, both want more and more people working to produce more goods and services that can benefit the nation and its rulers. In a declining population the wealth and the jobs become concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. This is not good for governments wanting more power. More jobs for the same number of workers gives the employed more power relative to the government. But this shift in the balance of power is not something any government wants to experience. This fact gets us to the heart of the matter. Regardless of your politics or form of government, a person or group is able to either live currently, that is on income, or off investments. This latter includes liabilities such as debt and paying down capital. Those who consume investments to some degree live off of accumulated assets. At some point all the latter course of action will consume its principal debt becomes so high the accrued interest is more than the principal adding people to an economy is like putting hot water under pressure into an oil well to push out the last reserves of oil migrants are a debt that will have to be paid sooner or later and adding more and more migrants to the mix may delay the time of reckoning but the impact is only made worse if a 100,000 people retiring within a decade is a huge problem A million is far, far worse. But we know everyone ages. Migrants are like a conflagration that goes out because the blaze is so hot the flames consume the oxygen in the room faster than it can be replaced. Society can delay the day of reckoning or it can adopt a course of action that takes into account the inevitability of getting to the point where population numbers are stabilized. A nation or the world can have an expanding population. What is not possible is for the population to reach infinity. What we have to be aware of is the constraints. There are numerous things a people need. Resources are not infinite in number or quantity. It does not help to have unlimited food supplies if our supply of potable water is limited. We can have infinitely large reserves of water, food, and heating, but if the means to build homes is lacking, adding to the population means at some point homelessness will become normalized. More numbers of persons mean production is increased if the new arrivals are put to gainful employment. But bodies are not needed to increase output. Output on farms and in factories has been going up many decades. The increase is accompanied by fewer people working in those fields. To claim we need more bodies to compensate for those retiring is untrue, unless production is flattening due to a more troublesome problem. Too few people are producing real goods and services compared to the proportion consuming goods and services. But even if production is in decline due to increased numbers of retirees, Is an expanding population the best or only response? Will things look better in 20, 40, 100, 500 years? At some point collapse will happen. A better solution is to look at how many consumers we have compared to producers. A person consuming but not producing means that person is not actually needed. Why increase the population when the same impact could be had by restructuring production? Adding people to the population becomes an even more perverse solution if we are trying to reduce our usage of resources. It does not take a broad-spectrum failure to collapse civilization. A critical decline in one mineral, example, nitrogen could collapse farming and our ability to grow healthy foods. The point is, the discussion we need to have is not about if we need to stabilize numbers, The decision that confronts us is when this will happen and at what level will the population be?